KBLA Talk 1580. Please welcome into the studio somebody with a lot of knowledge. She's got over 10 years of experience in the field, field of social welfare and program evaluation research. An activist, she research focusing on mental health disparities among communities of color, uh, permanency, well-being outcomes for youth and families involved in the child welfare system, along with... Um, formerly incarcerated young adults. Dr. Diane Terry, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thanks for um, being with me this morning, live and in the studio. If you want to see us, we're on the YouTubes at KBLA uh, 1580. Um, You're currently uh, serving as project coordinator for the California Reducing Disparities Project. What is the California Reducing (laughs) Disparities Project? It's an amazing project. So California did something historic where they um, allowed for voters, allowed for tax money to be funneled into community-defined evidence programs. And so that's communities of color, LGBTQ communities who are implementing mental health interventions using their own culturally defined strategies. So it's an amazing project because California has never made this type of investment before. And these folks are are addressing mental health in the ways that make sense for them that look very, very different from traditional therapy, from kind of Western practices. So we are evaluating that initiative to say, was this a cost effective way for the state to spend their money? Um, Are people doing better when they get these services compared to traditional programs? And the answer is they are. And the state has saved a lot of money. So. It's powerful. We'll we'll drill down a little deeper into that uh, as we go along. Is this this project uh, reducing disparities? Is it? Do you see it as an outgrowth of the movement for care first, a movement away from um, incarceration as the answer to everything? I think it is because it's also interconnected, and so I think that people are realizing that. There's systems that have caused our communities harm, and the more we feed into those systems, fund those systems, the worse outcomes our communities experience. So I definitely think it's all connected. When you say um, that folks in people are doing mental health intervention or support in ways that are not traditional, mm-hmm. can you give me an example? Yes. Um, So there's one group in Butte County. It's called the Hmong Cultural Center. And they are working with Hmong refugees, immigrants, um, and primarily elders. And recognizing that folks might be struggling with mental health, but would never step foot into a doctor's office, would never even maybe use some of the words we might use to describe a mental health challenge or crisis. So their intervention might look like gardening. It might look like taking the elders on field trips so they're acclimated to their environment, so they know how to navigate their environment. And through those acts, that's how they're kind of addressing distress or providing support for each other. So completely different. There's no therapist couch. There's no, you know, copay. There's none of that. No white coat. Exactly. No white coat. Exactly. You're just you're talking to your peers and you're you're gaining support. So when you as a social worker, uh, when you see that kind of a model when we talk about taking the elders and, and doing gardening or other things that might improve their their mental health how do you see the impact on the larger community or directly onto the youth onto the youth well i think um 
I think what's nice about some of the programs is they really are intergenerational and they're multi-generational and they're tapping into the idea that it's it's a large family unit. If someone is struggling with their mental health, everyone plays a role in that, but also we're getting strength from our elders. If If my grandparents are strong, I can be stronger. If they're able to pass down that wisdom, right? That's a cultural protective factor. Now I'm doing better as a youth. So I think there's kind of that direct connection. And I think in maybe more Western mental health, we don't think about it like that. It's like, if you have a problem, come see me. Let's talk about the individual. When I think for, for folks of color and communities like ours, it's it's our whole family unit. If the community is doing well, then I'm doing better. What's a, What do you mean when you say cultural protective factor? Just the idea that you can get strength from your culture and that kind of, you know, I look at some of the the American Indian Alaska Native projects. For them, that idea of being so disconnected from culture over the years, um, you know, from actually being told your culture is wrong, right? Now having organizations who are funded to do this work to say, you know, a lot of the traditions, youth might feel disconnected from those traditions. How do we bring them back? And then how are youth now finding strength because they feel more connected. They they have more spiritual grounding. Like we're not used to kind of talking about that in mental health. So that would be one example. I mean, it does make sense. Um, we were talking, at Dr. Joy DeGruy was on the show last week, and mm-hmm. she was talking about, you know, mo- more and more models that in- involve healing families instead of individuals. Yeah. You know, and I asked, is this... I mean, I guess in the Western model or psychological model, they'll call that family systems theory. But really, so, I mean, I know that's more us as black people, people of color, we have more of a collective mindset traditionally. Mm -hmm. But it seems like that should apply to everyone. Like, if mama's struggling... You know, you're going to be struggling on some level, right? Exactly, exactly. But if you're if you're told that it's just on you to fix, your problems are all in your head, it's all very, you know, centered on you as a person, then are you connecting your struggle to mama's struggle? And I think that's where maybe some of our social services don't always get it right. So when you said uh, California's saving a lot of money, what you mean, you're talking about by preventing problems that otherwise would manifest? Preventing problems, yes. And also that early intervention, right? So when someone's in distress and maybe they're that there could be an opportunity for them to cross over into something more serious, then that's where these programs are making an impact. So it's 35 programs around California addressing all different types of issues. But we've our our Um, cost-benefit study found a return of investment for of about four to five dollars for every dollar invested so it's it's a pretty powerful model I think that sounds like the direction we need to go do you feel like um, this kind of stuff you know in the mainstream media California is often derided as being uh, impractical or spending too much money or doing goofy things Uh, do you think that there's also an influence in terms of uh, these types of approaches spreading to other places? I think so. I mean, I think people also, you know, they talk about California, but then they look to see what we're doing and and they look (laughs) to see is it effective. And so I, you know, there has been talk even of this model spreading and how did California do it? And what did the research say? What were the the results? So I, I think it is spreading because it's resonating with people that, Maybe I don't go to a therapist when I'm having a problem. Maybe I'm talking to a spiritual advisor in my community, or maybe it's just the importance of 
maybe it is a traditional clinical setting, but it's someone who looks like me, who speaks my language, who understands the family dynamics I'm dealing with. And I think that resonates with folks. Um, Dr. Diane Terry, you know, you're a, a researcher, you're um, a social worker. Um, how does that how does that mesh with activism for you? Yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey, but a very purposeful journey. I think that, um, you know, at UCLA, we started out student activism, very much rooted in the Black Panther Party, very much rooted in this idea that you can you can change your surroundings, right? That people power. And I think from that, I went into social work. Um, and I do think social work is a is a place for activism, even though there's kind of that clinical work. There's also our, our mandate is to change the conditions around us. And it's interesting because I never thought I would get a PhD. I never thought I would do research, but working for the county and realizing there are some systems that need to be changed. I was a child protective social worker, um, and I would investigate families for child abuse, and the court would mandate these services and these programs, and I'm thinking this would not jive with my family. Like nobody wants to go to a parenting program because a judge ordered them to do it. It's it's a hostile condition. And I remember feeling like there needs to be more people like me doing research so that we have more effective policies. And then I landed at a research center that is all about research activism. That's really grounded in this idea that, you know, our research has to be advocating for change. It's not enough to, to do research to produce knowledge, which has its own value, but we work hand in hand with community organizers, with folks in the social justice world to really, how are you, how are we using this data to make something better? So, so it's not data for data's sake. Exactly. It's data for a purpose. Exactly. And it's hard. I will say community-based research is hard for that reason, but it, it has a direct and immediate sometimes impact. I mean, some people will say, well, how is it, how is it mm, objective if you're going in you know, with a purpose. Right, right. I think people don't realize sometimes how much research is subjective. Like people feel like numbers, you know, you can't lie with numbers, right? That's the most subjective thing. But when you even look at a survey that's developed to talk about um, depression, well, what if you don't use the word depression? What if, again, you don't, you don't kind of some of the behaviors and mannerisms and way maybe traditional models express depression. If I'm taking that survey, does that resonate with me? So those people who developed that survey also were subjective. They were using terms that they're familiar with. They were they were talking about contexts that are familiar with them. So I think all research has that subjectivity to it, but people don't realize it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I say about news. I, I think this idea that people run around saying, I'm objective, um, maybe you're fair. But you're not objective because you can only yeah. see the world through your eyes. I, I do my best to be fair, but I know that I'm going to see the world as a black woman. Exactly. Right? And that's just what it is. Um, a black woman who spent most of her life in cities. <laughs> right. Right. And and I just I think it, to me, it seems more honest to say, OK, I am biased. I have a bias built into my brain, but I'm fair. I'm doing my best to be fair. Right. And, and acknowledging the research that is biased. So when folks will say, well, how do you know this works for all people? They'll say, oh, we tested it with some black people or with some, you know, urban folks. And it's like, well, how many urban folks and how, you know, how did you reach them? And did you reach this particular demographic? Because, you know, people say 
we tested it with black people. Well, which black people? Where did they live? What was their right, context? Right, so, right. Yeah. yeah, we tested it with Clarence Thomas. Right. And Diana Ross. Yes. <laughs> and it works. <laughs> and, and it works. <laughs> well, okay, now we know it works for really wealthy people. Exactly. Uh, 800-920-1580 if you want to join the conversation. Talking with Dr. Diane Terry. Uh, and, you know, as, as you're um, researching and, and looking at how we prevent people from getting uh, caught up in the system. I want to uh, speak with you uh, as we come forward about this idea of a school to prison pipeline and what are the things we need to do to start to interrupt the criminalization of our young people? What can we as parents, as activists, as community members, as uh, social workers do to interrupt that cycle? It's KBLA Talk 1580. A safe place to go loud, loud. A great place for progressive politics. KBLA Talk 1580. Thanks for waking up with Dominique DePrima on KBLA Talk 1580. And we're talking with Dr. Diane Terry. Um, she uh, co-authored a book uh, with uh, with uh, Laura Abrams called Everyday Desistance, A Transition to Adulthood Among Formerly Incarcerated Youth, which looks at how um, formerly incarcerated young men and women navigate reentry and the transition to adulthood, specifically in Los Angeles. Yes. Um, so talk to me about, you know, I, I started with school to prison pipeline because I think the fact that a lot of kids just disappear from school and no one tracks it. Yeah. The fact that um, there seems to be okay if you're. We always hear if you're not reading by third grade, uh, the, the the numbers that I've seen around illiteracy are staggering. Yes. So how do we interrupt that school to prison pipeline? Yeah. So it's interesting in the in the book that you referenced, Everyday Desistance. We interviewed about. Um, 30 young men and women who had spent some portion of their adolescence um, and, and young adulthood in and out of the system. And when we would kind of track their, their life stories for so many, when we would say kind of like, when do you remember starting to get in trouble? Or when do you remember things got tough for you? It was always for a, some portion of them in the school setting. So folks who we're getting recall getting suspended as early as elementary school or for a lot of them middle school middle school being that period where yeah middle school is rough it's rough right and we think of it developmentally but it's also with your peers it's just that that critical time and so i think for those young men and women well for one not being suspended <laughs> at such a at such an early age I think um, they talk about really wishing that they had had more programs to benefit them. And then I think in the current context, you know, we have and I know L.A. has made some strides with this, but the willful defiance and suspending kids for that, suspending kids for fighting. I mean, people don't realize that all of that is setting up that pipeline. And when you factor in, for example, youth who are in foster care, if one youth gets in trouble, they get into a fight, maybe you can call home and you can talk to their parents and someone can come and get the youth. But what do you do when it's a youth who's in foster care? Maybe you have to call a social worker. Well, what if the social worker is not able to come? Where does that youth end up? If the police are called, 
that youth has a higher likelihood of then having now contact with the police, maybe having to spend a night in the halls. So it's really kind of setting up that pathway for them. So there's some youth who are even more vulnerable. Youth with developmental disabilities are so overrepresented within the system. So as you mentioned, uh, youth not being able to read, you kind of see how all of those factors converge. Yeah, well, so many, so much to unpack right there. I mean, I also have a theory that um, gifted youth are overrepresented. This is just mm-hmm. my instinct mm-hmm. because of the work I've done over the years uh, with um, the urban peace movement. Uh-huh. So many of these, you know, shot callers or whatever that I talked to are like, oh my God, they're a brainiac. Yes, they're so smart, um, and they probably got put in special ed or, or you know, um, became a so-called problem child. Exactly. As one example, I'll never forget, there was a young man I interviewed. This was, I don't know, maybe 2011-ish, sometime around there. And he's telling me this idea he had when I'm talking to him about what has his employment journey been. And he's like, yeah, I have this idea where I'm basically renting out my car and I'm like letting people use it and maybe driving them around. And I lost my car, so I can't do it anymore. And then it's like a few years later, Uber, Lyft, all of that kind of pops on the scene. And I'm like, wow, he he was doing that, you know, and it's just kind of interesting because they have the creativity. They have the heart but they've they've made mistakes and it is I don't think people realize how hard it is to overcome a mistake once you've had any kind of contact with the juvenile yeah, justice system. Yeah. You're forever targeted. So, um wh- when you you mentioned foster care and um when I was on the board of the community coalition I saw data that uh in many of our South LA schools you're talking 60-70% of the students okay. are in foster care. And then there's another percentage, which which I haven't seen the numbers on, that are unhoused. Yes. So to me, if your client base, your customers, i.e. the students at your school, if you're in education system, are not what, they're not in the same scenario they were before. Your customers have changed. Their needs have changed. Right. They're no longer necessarily going home to mom and dad or just mom or just dad. They're in a system. Does that mean you have to change your product? Yes. Like to me, the fact that our schools still have the call home and leave a message model right. or the sending you home model when such a huge number of our children don't even have a home to be sent to, it means that the business of educating has not kept up with the customer that they're trying to educate. Right, right. I agree with that. And I think you know, even looking at who the schools partner with, right? Because there's so many good community-based organizations who know how to reach that foster youth, who can kind of provide that safety net. And I think those orgs don't always get recognized or get the funding that they need to, to support the schools. Why um, is that? Is it is it infrastructure of the organizations? Like, what what's the reason for that? I mean, I can't say I know for sure, but I do know that a lot of community-based organizations are sometimes locked out of that funding cycle. So when there's time, you know, an RFP comes out and folks say, oh, there's, you know, we need an organization who can do X, Y, and Z. How do you even know that 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 proposal, request for proposals came out? Um, If it requires you to have a certain operating budget, you may be automatically disqualified. So there's a lot of kind of 
ways that maybe some of the larger organizations who are doing good work but um, could benefit, you know. Yeah, I've heard that from so many people that are in the mix. It's the same six or seven organizations that get all the funding. Exactly. And then, you know, um, but, you know, I think some folks are starting to take measures for that. So what you're talking about how you interrupt this school to prison pipeline, how we, and even once they're in that prison pipeline or they're, they've been touched by it in any way, mm-hmm. how difficult it is to be extracted from that. Right. Um, and things like funding organizations that know how to work with foster youth, that's something we can do as a collective or that's something we can do on an institutional level. What should we be doing um, on an individual level as parents, aunties, mentors uh, to young people? Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Um, I think I see the, the Probation Oversight Commission, which I'm a commissioner for, as, as maybe one way to do that because I think that, you know, we have these bodies who are here to kind of talk about how these systems can better serve our youth. And I think um, that commission in particular is very, very um, intentional about having community voice and community input. So for example, when we have the chief of probation at a meeting and he's talking about the vision for the probation um, department, or when we have probation staff coming to talk about different things, I think community members can call into those spaces. They can attend the meetings virtually, um, for one, just to kind of educate yourself about the issues, um, which is partly why I wanted to be a part of it, but also to, to give input because so many of us have been touched by the system or our families have. And so I think our voice needs to be represented when there's reform going on. Yeah, that's a huge um, undertaking. I commend you for being part of the Probation Oversight Commission. It seems like our youth um, correctional you know, um, system is really jacked up. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, to me, it seems, I, and I, you know, I'm an optimist. I'm always, well, we're moving this direction. Yeah. We're seeing change. But I, I feel like we have a new, uh, in, in Los Angeles, and I'm sure it's, it's the same in many, many cities and, and states around the country, we have a new probation chief every 10 minutes. Right. You know, the state keeps saying this is not fit to keep a, a young person, so they move them to another place that's barely fit. Right. Uh, and, 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 and I'm being generous and saying barely fit. Um, it's very, very concerning. I want to talk about that. Like, where is, where is the, where's the hope? Where's the um, where's the movement um, and what are the solutions to the way that we deal with youth incarceration and discipline as a city, state, and as a society? It's KBLA Talk 1580. More of First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. Broadcasting live from Lamar Park, USA. Welcome back to your home for unapologetically progressive radio, KBLA Talk 1580. So I'm talking with Dr. Diane Terry. She's a MSW and a PhD uh, project coordinator for uh, California um, Reducing Disparities Project, but also you're a member of the Probation Oversight Commission. I asked you about the whole system, but let me uh, back up a tiny bit and explain what the uh, Probation Oversight Commission is. Yes. So it's a I believe we have about nine commissioners and the commission launched in 2020 and they started formally meeting in 2021. I joined the commission earlier this year. And so it's it's an oversight commission. It's a group of concerned citizens and we all have different backgrounds, legal backgrounds, uh, 
many of us touched in some way by the system, our families have, and we provide recommendations. We we really do query the department um, on the progress. If if a law is in place, how is that being implemented? Where are their challenges? Where's the data to support the decisions you mm-hmm. all are making? And we produce reports. And so um, in your book, Everyday Desistance, The Transition to Adulthood Among Formerly Incarcerated Youth, um, certainly you, you've done the research and you've been in, you've worked in the system. What do you think we need to do, like collectively as lawmakers, as activists, as parents, to improve this, this, the way that we deal with young people in trouble? Yeah, it's such a, there are so many kind of angles, I think, to the issues. And I think it's even looking at first starting at that first point of contact. And we talked about that a little bit earlier, right? How do we even disrupt a youth even getting touched by the system in the beginning? If a, if a fight breaks out at school, for example, who can we call? Is there a team we can put in place? How do we say above anything else, I want to avoid this youth being incarcerated tonight. So I think that that first point of contact is important. Um, and then we talked about the funding, right? So there are, there are really good community-based organizations out there. And even getting into the system to be able to provide programs is really hard. Um, people come to the commission meetings and they say, I offer this program. I want to come in. I've heard people even say, I'll do it for free. How do we kind of loosen the restrictions so that good organizations can get in there to provide services? And then staffing is a huge issue that has really impacted the department, where if you want to move to any sort of healing model or transformation of the system, you need the staff to do it. And there's there's not enough staff. And I know consistently that's raised at the meetings. I mean, I, I saw an article in the LA Times talking about how the county is struggling to get the mental health workers that they need. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I've seen that with, with this care first model, you know, um, my friend um, Judge Songhai Armstead is over that, the, the JCOT department. I know, for example, they're giving out grants right now mm-hmm. and looking to target organizations that don't have the huge infrastructure by assisting them. But even getting the word out about stuff like that, and so you can get the organizations and the staffing in place, um, you know, it, it's challenging, right? It's very challenging. And, and there is hope. There's been some initiatives in California in, and in L.A. County that have done it. So the California Reducing Disparities Project is one that, that I we talked about earlier where they were very intentional about not funding organizations who always get the funding and going out into the communities to find the groups who everyone kind of knows is doing the work, but who are under the radar. L.A. County, through the Ready to Rise initiative, also did the same thing, where they funded groups who were um, offering services to keep youth out of the halls um, or stop them from going back, so that prevention, early intervention. And they funded about 49 community-based organizations who were doing this good, good, good work. And, um, and it was powerful. The results, the results showed, you know, the data showed strength in, in those types of organizations. Let's go to Dwight calling us from the city of Compton. Good morning, Dwight. Hi, hi, Dominique. Thank you for taking my call. Good morning, Dr. Terry. I, I want to thank you for the work you're doing. Uh, has your organization ever thought about dyslexia 
being the cause of a lot of young people getting in trouble because I myself, I've written poems and I've given some to Dominique, uh, matter of fact, mm-hmm. um, just testing elementary kids for dyslexia because they, I, I, I have dyslexia, but I've also heard that uh, Einstein and also Elon Musk has dyslexia, mm-hmm. so it's not a matter of your intelligence. And then they get into trouble because they don't want to be embarrassed when the teacher calls their name and they can't uh, answer the question pr- correctly. And that's what caused them to have that anger. Then they want to fight. Then they yeah. get in trouble. They don't want to go to school to be embarrassed. I mean, it can be dyslexia. It, it could be illiteracy. It could be you're hungry. It right. could be something's going on at yeah, home I mean, with that, violence. Yeah, those are other issues, too. Yeah. But as far as the embarrassment. Right. And a lot of prisoners can't read, I'm told. Yes. Right. Is that true, Dr. Terry? I don't know any percentages, but I do know that there there are are folks definitely in those systems who can't read or who have dyslexia or, or some of the other challenges we mentioned. And I think going back to kind of those starting points, when those youth are identified in schools, how do we handle them in the schools? What labels do we put on them? Because those labels we put on the youth in the schools, then follow them. Then by the time they get to the halls, they have all this paperwork on them. They've 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 been a part, they've been so um, marked as needing a system or, or, you know, in a harmful way. So then when you come to maybe offer services 10 years down the line, they're like, I don't, I don't want another program. I don't want another system. I'm, I'm tired of being labeled. And so I think that's something as social workers, we need to figure out how do we talk to youth um, and in the schools. And then yes, once they're incarcerated as well. So I, I hear you. I agree. Mm. So, I mean, and I, I talked about the probation system, and I know this is true uh, of of many different states and cities, but I, I experience it, you know, just watching in L.A., you know, even the facilities where where youth are held and the staffing issues there, but also the approach, which to me, I mean, I, you know, I'm not dealing with tons of... Um, needy teenagers day in day out so it's easy for me to judge but at the same time it seems very very um carceral punitive and and I don't see from what I'm from where I'm sitting I don't see a lot of rehabilitation and reform going on yes and I think and this is you know personal opinion and just kind of based on my observations at the at the commission meetings it it has been a concern because there's there's use of force that's happening and there are incidents where youth are harmed um i do think from this from what staff have pointed out at the meetings it can be so hard when you are understaffed to implement those models, those those rehabilitative approaches. But I do think um, it starts with relationships. When folks feel safe with you, when they feel like they can trust you, um, and that takes time, I do think those staff, that's when they can have that impact. Unfortunately, the halls, which are supposed to be a more temporary kind of holding space, they, they've they're holding youth in there for far longer than they should be. So um, that's unfortunate. But I think what it does allow is for staff to kind of build those relationships with children. It's hard, though. How do you trust someone who's incarcerated you? Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of like also some of what I'm talking about is before they get there, right? So we're on school campuses. I I just am very anti-cops on campuses. Yes. I think if you had tons of counselors... Whether it's Columbine or 
South L.A., they're more likely to know what's going on with that child. Yes. You know, I get so angry when I see all these videotapes of kids being arrested for talking back to a teacher, kids being thrown down on the ground, kids being, you know, handcuffed and such. Um, Because, A, I don't think it should be necessary. In in 99% of the cases, to me, that wasn't necessary. And, B, it seems like it leads to that juvenile hall experience. Exactly. If you if you approach someone in a combative way, they will become more combative. And I think that's what we what we see. And I think even working at DCFS, that's what I saw. And that was one of my challenges is that I'm a social worker by training. That's my heart. That's my passion. But now I'm coming to investigate you for child abuse. I'm walking into your home. I may have the police with me. How are we building trust? How are we building a relationship? Why would you ever care what I have to offer you in terms of a service? I've now come into your home and told you you're wrong and you might get arrested. So And lose your kid. And lose your children. At the, at, on the other hand, you're seeing all these kids... You know, we and maybe it's not all these. Maybe it's that's my perception because I'm tracking the news. But children that have had multiple contacts with right. DCFS and then end up dead because somebody missed the fact that they were in danger in their home. Exactly, exactly. And there was a model when I worked in the Compton office that was um, uh, the ter- the name is is escaping me. But basically, it was a model that we do everything but try to detain the kids. If there's family, if there's, where's the church, if there's a community provider, what can we do to kind of be that first point of contact? Some people, there's neglect because they're poor, right? So they're not trying to neglect their kids. They need a car seat. They need money for a car seat. How do we get those services in place? How do we bring family? Do we need to move another family member into the home? So kind of thinking with some like alternative approaches um, and then removing kids, obviously, when there's real danger. Talking with Dr. Diane Terry, and you 1580 a fascinating conversation. I uh, want to talk about what is working when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate meets a scholarly match. Hey. Interesting. Uh, to Dwight's point, uh, Fahima just sent me an article about how uh, New York started testing kids for dyslexia after the pandemic nice. and and found a whole bunch of kids. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Just like I wish that our schools would re- routinely test, uh, especially in black community, kids for being gifted and talented. Exactly. I think, you know, we, we need to start labeling more of our kids gifted and talented and find out some of our troubled children are bored as hell yes. with your curriculum. Yes. I'll say it. Dr. Diane Terry, what is working? I think the Oversight Commission, the Probation Oversight Commission, is a really good step in the right direction because, as I mentioned, it, it is a group of people who are asking those questions. I think sometimes the probation department can operate under a black box. You don't know what's happening inside. You just see what you, you know, what comes out on the news. A lot of us see. And so asking those hard questions, um, pushing for reforms, going out and doing inspections and saying, hey, here's what's not right. But also here's what is right. We went to this location and here were some good practices we observed. Um, So I think that's a really positive step in the right direction. 
We also have in L.A. County a new initiative, and it's the Trauma Prevention Partnership, uh, California Community Foundation and the Office of Violence Prevention. They're funding a variety of community-based strategies, um, you know, everything from community healing to the gang interventionists, right? So those community intervention workers. Um, so those are those community-grounded models and ways of healing that we know work. And so now they're getting the funding to do it. And hopefully with our evaluation, we'll show that it's working and that it's promising. So th those are good steps. Um, one of the things that I think you know you probably know about that all of us could learn a little bit more about, not just us, as a researcher and an uh, MSW but, and an author, but as a mom, is that the adolescent brain is different, right? right. It's different. So as, as parents, as educators, as disciplinarians, or what, what are we missing? What do we, should we know about dealing with middle school and high school aged people that we don't? Yeah. And I'm learning too, as my oldest is in middle school. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because we hear the science, for instance, with juveniles, that their brains aren't even fully developed until I think it's like early 20s or something like that. And we, we hear that, but we never think about how it applies to our own children. So I think maybe taking, I do think there's more we can do to educate ourselves, right? So there's there's a whole movement around like conscious parenting and gentle parenting. And I think there's uh, different views of thought on how that parenting for method sure, works. <laughs> for sure. I mean, I, I think I read on the internet, you know, gentle parenting is for gentle kids. I got yeah. gangsters. You yeah. know, we all got yeah. excuses and reasons. But some of it is just understanding the decision making process, right? And exactly, you know, not just for parents, but for law enforcement, for teachers. Exactly. And it comes back to this idea that, you know, the concept you brought up about um, willful defiance, which, you know, we have seen in LA that they don't get to do that anymore. I think the governor right. just signed it for the state of California. Yes. Uh, but, you know, in other states, it's still a thing where really it means having an attitude can get you suspended. Yeah. Right. So so what's going on in that young person's brain at that time? What's going on in their nervous system? And then what's going on in the person responding to that, too? Because it's like if the youth is having we can recognize the youth is having a heightened response. But we are, too, especially if I know I'm going to be filmed. I'm the teacher or the school police officer. And and I think so on both sides, there's some education as the professional. How do you calm yourself down in that moment? And then I think there's valid concerns where I've heard probation staff say, if there's a riot breaking out, um, you know, we're trying to also keep some kids safe in the middle of that. And so I think that's where the use of force happens. So, so both sides, how does that probation officer respond to a safety concern, keep their cool and not put hands on a youth? That's a lot of dynamics at play. I mean, that's the whole de-escalation conversation, which right. goes beyond youth uh, youth law enforcement and into our societal expectations of uh, disciplinarians and, and law enforcers. Uh, when we come forward, we'll get some final thoughts from Dr. Diane Terry before we hand the microphone over to Mr. Tavis Smiley. That's next, KBLA Talk 1580. The station you turn to when you've had it up to here with cultural incompetence. KBLA Talk 1580. 
The conversation continues right now, right now, right now with right now. Dominique DePrima on First Things First. So much ground to cover here, Dr. Diane Terry. Appreciate you spending the hour with us. Uh, you are a member of the Provation Oversight Commission. You're an author, Everyday Desistance, A Transition to Adulthood Among Formerly Incarcerated Youth, a Social Worker. What do you want to uh, leave us with this morning? I would love for folks to um, become more familiar with the Probation Oversight Commission. We do meet monthly, and these are public meetings. They are held um, in a public space once a month, usually on a, on a Thursday, um, often at St. Anne's. And people can also call in. So there are hybrid meetings. If you can't attend in person, you can watch um, on YouTube and just become familiar with the issues. I think for a lot of us, we get into this work because, you know, you're envisioning that being your son, your cousin, your brother, your uncle. And so, um, you know, when you hear a story in the L.A. Times about the probation department, you know, chime into a meeting. There's always room for public comment. You can email the commission to leave public comment. Um, you can call in. And those perspectives are represented and they're valid. And we do follow up on them. Okay, so um, is there a website or social medias or any of that stuff that we can uh, track to follow these meetings? Thursdays, you said, once a month, usually at St. Anne's. Um, is there an online presence? Yes, so you can go to poc.lacounty.gov, and that's our website where you can get information about the meetings, see past videos, um, all of that. And then on Twitter, it's um, at LA County POC, and that's another way to stay connected. At LA County POC, which uh, stands for uh, Probation uh, uh, Oversight Commission. Probation yes. Oversight Commission. And where can we find your book? Oh, you can find my book on Amazon. It's again, it's just stories of young men and women who who are explaining how they navigated life after being incarcerated. And so we really tried to focus on what are those everyday steps that you take to change your life. So we always either hear about the ultimate success stories or the people who really struggled. And this is what does it look like every day to change your life? So More like the sort of regular person navigating the system. Um, is it getting better for folks who, you know, who, uh, who are reentering? I think it's getting better in the sense that there, um, there seems to be more intention about making sure people get connected to the right services. And I think that's important. And again, funding those organizations so they have the capacity to serve those individuals. Funding the organizations, getting the word out. Um, I don't know, hopefully we're getting to a point where, you know, not checking the box or the double jeopardy of not being able to work after one is incarcerated is a thing of the past. I don't think we're there yet, but it seems like we're moving in that direction. Exactly. And I think, um, you know, fewer people are get young people are getting arrested, which is a good sign. So now we need to shrink the halls because we, we shouldn't we shouldn't we need to shrink the footprint of the probation department. Right. Uh <laughs> Form, fit, function. Yeah. And hopefully we'll continue that shrink. It's one of the few bipartisan areas of agreement in anything in our whole country is that the prison industrial complex is too doggone big. Yes. Dr. Diane Terry, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. Okay, I said I was bringing back the quotes. I, I usually do a, used to do a quote at the end of the show, and I got some folks in my DMs talking about bring back the quotes. So today I am going to quote... Um, 
Latanya Ward, who was on in our first hour today, because she said something that really hit me. She said, surround yourself with people that are willing to help you check for your blind spots. Surround yourself with people that are willing to help you check for your blind spots. Powerful, powerful advice. I'm Dominique DePrima. History is now, and we are making it together. Until tomorrow, be safe, be aware, one love.